Okay, yeah, hi. And I am sorry that the last two classes didn't record properly. By way of explanation, I um, did everything right, got the AirPods hooked up to the computer, but then I forgot to change the input, so it was recording from the, the speaker or the microphone inside the computer, and it's, it's unlistenable. The good thing is, though, the last two lectures are really closely mirrored with the lecture I gave um, that's on the previous, the previous time I went through. You go on the podcast feed, you go down, you'll see the previous year's lectures. And I believe it's 11 and 12 um, are the, the lectures that I gave the last two weeks. So you can go back and listen to them. They really cover the same material. Um, so, you know, it shouldn't be a big deal, but I do apologize for that and I'll be more careful going forward. I hope everyone had a good reading week. Um, and now we're really into the home stretch. It's hard to believe, but it's, uh, it's true. We've got three more classes on standard of review. Then we get into the charter questions, which are, uh, tricky and quite interesting. Then the Aboriginal, uh, and administrative law overlap. Um, one sort of throw-in uh, lecture on a few stray topics, a little bit on admin law and practice, and then we review the course. So it really is coming to a close. Um, what we're going through today is at the very high end of importance for your exam and for how you practice doing admin law. That is, how do you go about doing a reasonableness review, learning from Vavilov? So, really important lecture. We're going to take our time with it. Um, my expectation is that we will spend most, if not all of today on this topic. Uh, and then we will get into um, SOCAM and the Mason case. And those are illustrative of a few sort of stray points from Vavilov. The Mason case really is just an excellent illustration of the application of Vavilov and really condenses down Vavilov's um, maybe call it 50 pages of most important points down to about 30 paragraphs. So very useful case to have at your fingertips. Um, my expectation is then we will come back to Vavilov next class after talking about SOCAM and Mason. And we'll talk about the uh, concurring reasons of Justices Abella and Karakitsanis at that point, because those reasons jump nicely into the Bell Canada NFL case, which we have for Friday which um, illustrates, I think, some of the issues that Justices Karakatsanis and Abella foresee in the Vavilov case nicely. So that pairs well together. Uh, and then there's still a few more stray things to talk about with respect to the reasonableness review that we'll get to in the first class of next week. And we'll also try to do a sort of big picture review of this sort of substantive review based on the Vavilov framework at the end of that class. Um, I'll be not forgetting about the delay uh, point that I, I missed in the procedural fairness, but we'll be getting to that after we complete all of the substantive review. So with that sort of roadmap of where we are and where we're going, I'd like to jump into today the question of, okay, you've, you've looked at the exceptions to the reasonableness review. You accept that there's a presumption of reasonableness. How do you go about applying an actual reasonableness review to an administrative decision. And I think I've said this a couple times, but most commentators have agreed that this is the real value add of Davilov. 
that previously most administrative law cases had said, oh, review on a reasonableness standard, be deferential. But they hadn't really told judges how to do that in any great detail. And as a result, what one judge thought of as a reasonableness approach really might not align with another. And you might get some judges who are just highly deferential and maybe overly deferential. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the ways people have been overly deferential in their interpretation of recent Supreme Court of Canada cases in a second. Um, and some judges are, you wouldn't know there's deference at all. I mean, it's clearly that they've said, okay, this is my interpretation of what should have happened and it will be reasonable if you did the exact same thing. So, you know, you can have this uh, great difference in approach based on the judge you get. And of course, that's always the case and it still persists to this day. But the effort of these Vavilov, uh, this Vavilov section about how to approach reasonableness tries to tackle that and tries to give you some clear frameworks for what reasonableness review is, what the deference ought to be, and where the deference might go too far. You know, on that point about, um, you know, what judge you get, I had a judicial review I argued last Friday, and it was one of those ones that was just a dream because you know you get the judge that morning, right? Like you, you don't know who your judge is going to be or even if you're going to get a judge until you check the court list, which is posted at like 8.30, 8.45 in the morning. You scroll down, you see your case on there. I mean, that's the first big win because quite often they say, you know, go to the counter and we'll see if you can find you a judge. Showed up and we had uh, Justice Wendy Baker and Justice Baker was a member of the Civil Resolution Tribunal from its inception until when it was founded. And this was a judicial review where I was defending a decision of the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So the judge couldn't have had a better background in it, couldn't have understood it, administrative law in a principled way more clearly. And it was one of those you know, magical days where you know, I know my job is just to not mess it up. So I got up there, 10 minutes, sat down, just said, you get it. And uh, then had a nice lunch. And then one in the afternoon. So it was, it was a nice day, but you, don't, you can't guarantee that. You know, quite often you are gonna get a judge who doesn't have that background in administrative law, maybe hasn't really grappled with what a reasonableness review ought to entail and taking them carefully through Vavilov or maybe more likely going forward carefully through Mason so they can understand what this type of review entails is going to be really important. Um, so without further ado, let's get into it. The first thing that I want to highlight coming out of Vavilov, and this is something that you'll see uh, referenced in the decision, but has become sort of a buzz phrase that is often used to describe the Vavilov approach to review is this idea of reasons first. Reasons first review. And what they're getting at when they talk about reasons first review is they're talking about how giving a proper deferential review approach to an administrative decision requires you to focus on the reasons that were actually offered for the decision and to give those reasons respectful attention. And one of the you know, really key things that happens here is the idea that you are not to decide the case yourself and use that as a measuring stick to ascertain if the administrative decision 
you know, fell within a reasonable range. Rather, the idea is you are to not have decided it yourself, but to carefully review the reasons that are given and determine if those reasons can withstand a reasonably careful scrutiny. And as part of this discussion, the court again amplifies something that we started to talk about in respect of Baker, and that is the positive effects of encouraging and requiring reasoning processes to be done coinciding with and, and shared coinciding with decisions. That the act of rationalizing, reasoning, giving an explanation for why a decision has been made tends to lead to better decision-making, more careful decision-making, more thoughtful decision-making, and also tends to lead to more, you may not say satisfied, but you know, losing litigants who are able to, to accept what happened to them and why they lost. So reasons go from being this thing that prior to Baker, it wasn't even clear that there was ever a right to have reasons given, to Baker saying, no, in, in circumstances, procedural fairness will require you at least give me some reasons, to Vavilov saying reasons are really the central focus of my review. I'm starting with the reasons. I'm starting with a posture of respectful attention to these reasons. And this is going to be the centerpiece of how I approach reasonableness. We're going to come back to, towards the end, what to do in the absence of reasons. How do you do a respectful reasons first approach if there are no reasons? You know, we'll talk about that. But the, you know, the lesson of Avalov is that when you have reasons, focus on them. And a practical um, consequence of Avalov is that there's been a recognition through administrative decision-making bodies that they better pay attention to the reasons and that they better um, you know, issue reasons in circumstances where they you know, may otherwise have been a bit on the fence as to whether to do so. There's a strong push towards more bodies giving more reasons. Now that, just to pause and take a slight detour, just to remind ourselves about the tensions of procedural fairness and giving more procedure, requiring bodies to give more careful and detailed reasons, you know, potentially has the effect of slowing down their ability to process cases, process cases quickly. So there is a trade-off but that trade-off has been accepted in essence by the court in Vavilov as, as the right way to go about things. And so you see this um, culture of justification is what the, um, the academics have started to sort of term the Vavilov approach. And indeed there's a, a book I almost assigned for this course by Professor Paul Daly called Culture of Justification. And it's about this idea that it's incumbent upon administrative decision makers to justify their decisions through, through reasons uh, as, a, as a strong default presumption. And then it's incumbent upon courts to review that justification with a respectful eye, but to um, potentially interfere when the justification is insufficient. And I want to 
really stop there and emphasize this point because this is a fairly major uh, development in Vavilov, which is the clear, clear recognition that what matters is not just the reasonableness of the substantive outcome itself, but also the justification for that outcome. And this was seen by many as a significant departure from how the Supreme Court of Canada had been approaching administrative law. Now, the court in Vavilov denies that it ever did this, but there are two decisions that are easy to confuse because they're sort of similarly named and that they're a province and a profession, Newfoundland nurses and Alberta teachers where in both cases, the Supreme Court of Canada seemed to have said, well, I'm not sure that I can um, understand how this decision maker specifically explains that they got to a decision, but the decision is reasonable and I can see how they could have gotten there. So without any explanation of how they did get there, the fact that I can see a plausible route there, the court had found was sufficient to uphold a decision. So people have been thinking, well, I guess it's not just about whether um, acceptable reasons were, were granted, but also whether any acceptable reasons could have been granted. That was this really high water level of deference coming out of the Alberta teachers and Newfoundland nurses cases that had been taken up by the lower courts regularly. And they had said, you know, as the Supreme Court of Canada makes clear in these two cases, judicial review and proper deference requires consideration not only of the reasons offered, but the reasons that could have been offered and to uphold decisions if there could have been reasons offered to justify this decision as reasonable. And so if you think about it that way, under such an approach, judicial review is really only about the outcome you'd have to show that the actual outcome is outside the bounds of reasonableness um, because it doesn't matter how you got there if there is a way to get there. That's the firmly rejected approach that is rejected in Vavilov. They say we never really said that. You know, you can read the cases yourself to see what you think. What's important to know, though, is that from now on, the court had said, we are concerned with the outcome, but I also am concerned with the reasoning process that led to that outcome. And even if the outcome, you know, is reasonable in the circumstances to the judge appears so, if the reasoning process can't withstand scrutiny, then we don't have a decision that reaches the standards of justifiability, transparency, and intelligibility that the Supreme Court sets out in Vavilov as being the hallmarks of proper administrative decision-making. Justifiable, intelligible, and transparent. These are kind of buzzwords coming out of Vavilov. And you want to say, I need a reasonable outcome, and I need a reasoning process that's justifiable, transparent, and intelligible. These are the two things that you could claim for your client if you're challenging a decision to say my client 
She had a right to a reasonable decision and a justifiable, intelligible, and transparent justification for that decision, and she didn't get either one, or she didn't get both. On the other side, you know, you can say, well, there may be some parts of this reasoning process that could have been more clearly stated, but it certainly satisfies the level of justifiability, intelligibility, and transparency, so there's no basis to overturn, and the outcome's reasonable. So this is the kind of high-level ground that administrative law is really fought on now, is that that standard, and with that understanding that you're allowed to argue about the reasonableness of the outcome, and also you're allowed to argue the reasonableness of the justification. Are right, any questions on that? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to go into that at the end. Yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's tricky. And we are going to come back to that in the charter context when we talk about the Trinity Western University case, which is one of those cases where there are no reasons and you can see it applied in context there. Does procedural fairness, it does allow you to not have reasons in some circumstances? In some circumstances, exactly, exactly, yeah. And that's the Baker case saying that there are some circumstances where you are required to provide reasons, um, but there are others, ones where you're not. Quite often, just to sort of take a small tangent, and we'll come back to this, quite often it's instances where there's a body of people coming to one decision. So we'll see it in the Trinity Western University case. This is a really interesting case about the Law Society's decision not to accept graduates of the Trinity Western University into the um, article students uh, PLTC training program. And uh, there was an argument, we'll, we'll talk about this case at length, that this was a violation of the charter rights of the students of Trinity Western University, a freedom of religion argument. There's a contrary charter argument that um, you know, there was a discriminatory nature to the Trinity Western University's admission policies. And this was a decision of the law society as a whole. And so there isn't the same uh, reasons of one decision maker. There could be different things motivating different people in a body like that. How do you ascertain the reasons? You know, we'll get into that. It's quite important. I'm glad you raised that now because it is, you know, it's, it's such a the threshold for this whole type of review to have reasons. And it does sort of fall apart when there aren't reasons, but there are circumstances. There won't be reasons. And what do you do? We will talk more about that. There are other questions? All right, let's keep going. Um, so the next thing that I want to note before we really get into the meat of it all, which is you know going through the, uh, the different checkpoints the court asks you to consider in assessing the reasonableness of a decision, is the court grapples with an issue that had been raised by Justice Binney in Dunsmuir in his uh, concurring, or maybe dissenting, I, th I think they're concurring, but a separate set of reasons in Dunsmuir, where Justice Binney had said, you know, look, you're, you're collapsing reasonableness, patent unreasonableness into a single standard, and you're trying to simplify things, but there's inevitably a massive amount of complexity in different administrative decision makers and there's going to be greater or lower degrees of deference that are going to be appropriate in different circumstances. And so you may be saying it's one standard, but really you're just punting the analysis down the road a little bit, you know, pointing that out. 
And the Supreme Court of Canada, therefore, in the Vavilov case, had some interveners saying, go the other way. We need more standards of review. You know, we need more different approaches to deference that you could say are appropriate for different bodies, something for bodies that are doing a real purely uh, high-level policy review or function, some bodies that are doing more adjudicative disputes, you know. How can you really lump together a municipal city council with an RTB adjudicator, with a person giving fishing permits, with a mine inspector, with the National Energy Board approving a pipeline? How could one standard really fit everything? Um, so that tension was well before the court, and there was able counsel making any number of submissions to try to uh, tackle this in a coherent and principled way. And what the Supreme Court of Canada said is, look, we're not going to accede to there being more than one standard of reasonableness or a variety, variety of degrees of, of reasonableness. We are going to say that reasonableness is a single standard. So there's it's just one standard. That standard is reasonableness. But Justice Binney's criticism is entirely valid and so they account for this by being frank and saying, but what is reasonable in any given circumstance is highly contextually dependent. So reasonableness is a single standard of deference. It's a single approach. But what will be reasonable is context dependent. And if you, um, you know, if you, if you write the word context 10 times on your exam, you're probably on the right track because it's so repetitive in administrative law that so many of these things require careful respect for context. But again, that just makes sense because we're trying to put a framework for judicial oversight of the executive in its endless permutations. So there's going to be inevitably contextual factors that are going to have to come to bear in a reasonable understanding of the big function of did the legislature intend for the executive to be able to do this or not. So I do like paragraph 88 of Dunsmuir, or sorry, of Vavilov, uh, which I think gives an excellent sort of encapsulation of this problem. And I'll just read from it briefly. So the court says, in any attempt to develop a coherent and unified approach to judicial review, the sheer variety of decisions and decision makers that such an approach must account for poses an inescapable challenge. And this is them pointing to Binney and saying, you're right, there's a, there's a problem here. The administrative decision makers whose decisions may be subject to judicial review include specialized tribunals exercising adjudicative functions, independent regulatory bodies, ministers, frontline decision makers, and more. Their decisions vary in complexity and importance ranging from the routine to the life altering. These include matters of high policy on the one hand and pure law on the other. Such decisions will sometimes involve complex technical considerations and at other times ordinary common sense and logic will suffice. I think that's a great encapsulation of the breadth of my, you know, the executive, that, that circle on the board. You think about what it entails, what it covers, a huge array of different decision makers. And so that's where they say 
the approach is one context-dependent standard of reasonableness. And to apply that, the court says, in essence, they tell the courts, they tell the lawyers, they tell everybody, if you want to be able to apply this standard in a coherent, principled way, you better do your work. You better do your homework. You better learn about this tribunal. You better learn about uh, what binds this tribunal, what guides this tribunal, the practices of this tribunal, what was before the tribunal, the submissions that were before the tribunal. These are all factors we're going to be talking about as we go through this. But the point being that most of the things that we get at when we are talking about how to apply a reasonableness review is really getting at how to understand the context that this decision arose within and through that context understand what would be a reasonable decision or one of the various possible reasonable decisions. And it can be the case that without that context, you could look at a decision and say, wait, how could this body have thought that? This seems crazy. You get that context. You start to realize, oh, they probably don't want to follow the same common law approach to this issue. And they, they probably do want to have some coherency with a, uh, you know, a, another part of the statute that maybe isn't entirely apparent on first glance of this decision, but would cause real tension in their broader administrative scheme if you were to interpret one thing you know, the way that might intuitively make more sense. So careful, respectful attention to the decision, the reasons, and the context are all part of this review. All right, so that's sort of setting the stage, all that stuff that I just said. Now we're getting into what would be the sort of framework that you would certainly have in your notes and you would look to um, demonstrate on the exam. And these are the two broad um, sort of considerations that you're looking at when you're determining if a decision is reasonable. And the second broad consideration breaks down into a number of points. So the broad considerations are first, is this decision based on internally coherent reasoning? And second, is this decision justifiable in light of the legal and factual constraints? And, and the way you can, um, you can sort of consider this is you think the first category, I just have to look at the decision itself. I don't have to know really much else except for what's on the page. The second category, the legal and factual constraints, this is where it opens up. And I have to know what was before the decision maker, the evidence, the statutory context, the broader law context, etc. Submissions of parties. We'll talk about all that stuff. And in order to be reasonable, you need both internally coherent reasoning and to be justifiable in light of the legal and factual constraints. So the first broad category is certainly the easier one to explain, or there's less, less detail we have to get into. Internally coherent reasoning, the court says, is in essence 
reasoning that adds up. You're looking for these, what they call the hallmarks of reasonableness. Justification or justifiability, transparency and intelligibility. These things I said a few times earlier. What they don't want you to do is to take a, you know, a strict logician's eye to this and look for any little logical flaw, even if it doesn't really affect the ultimate outcome, or look for any misstatement or, you know, there's a, they forgot to put the word not in front of something, and when you clearly know what they were trying to get at. It's not what they call a line-by-line treasure hunt for errors, which I think is an excellent sort of image to have, where you can imagine, um, you know, like the eye you might take to proofreading a manuscript, where you do do that line-by-line treasure hunt for error, looking for any little tiny thing and, and then, you know, correcting it. They say, that's not it. We want to look at this thing as a whole, And I want to understand if the decision maker gives me what I need to understand how they get from the premises to the conclusion. They say you want to trace their reasoning without encountering any fatal flaws in the overarching logic. And there must be a line of analysis that could reasonably lead the tribunal from the evidence to the conclusion. So, you know, the reasons need to add up and they can't exhibit just clear overriding logical fallacies, unfounded generalizations, absurd premises, these sorts of things that you read and you think, oh, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's the type of thing that's going to trigger a problem with internally coherent reasoning. And sometimes you get an administrative decision that suffers from a failure of internally coherent reasoning. But frankly, it's pretty rare. More often, you're going to be needing to understand the context and go a little broader to get where the problem lies. Yeah? Just when we're using the word internally, are we kind of saying that that's internally in the context of the tribunal? Like it's the reasoning is coherent in that sense, or is it kind of more broad than that? I'm saying internally, I mean internal to the reasons themselves. So internally in the uh, justification that was in fact offered. I'm glad you asked that. And so, yeah, so you, you almost imagine just you, you get your decision. It looks kind of like this. Can I find a problem just in the actual paper I got in my, in my uh, reasons? That's this category. Internally coherent reasoning offered in the decision itself. Then the second category is where I'm looking at everything that comes into this decision. Yeah. What do you say the first category is like just Yeah. So the first category, like, 
the reasoning together and the second category is the actual decision? Uh, that's, I see where you're getting that, that framing from and that probably is often the case, but not necessarily because you could um, find things in the second category that lead you to realize the reasoning is, in, is inadequate. So I'll, I'll show you what I mean there, especially things like submissions of counsel or the full legal context. Um, you may not appreciate that, so you get to the second category, and then you see, oh wait, there's a major issue that counsel raised the decision never addresses at all. That's not adequate reasoning. So, so you can, um, or that's not an adequate set of reasons. So you can get things in the second category that get at a failure to justify the decision. But quite often, I think what you're, you're getting at is, is um, you know, it's probably true. Um, but more broadly, I think that the, the categories that I've sort of put out, if they're helpful framing, I think it's helpful to, to have them. And just to remember that, you know, without necessarily trying to overlay them on top of each other, you have to have a reasonable substantive outcome. You have to have reasonable justification that gets you there. That's one category. Then you also have to have internally coherent reasoning in those reasons. And you have to be able to look at the record before the decision maker, the full actual, uh, legal and factual context, and have that all still support the decision. So they're, they're sort of, there's overlap, but I wouldn't say you could really lay them on another in, in a clean way. They're so both. You can look at the decision in both. You can look, yeah, like you're going to be still looking at the decision to see if, um, you know, it, it, the justification, the reasoning adds up, but you're going to be pulling things in that aren't apparent just on the face of the decision. You're going to have to look at the broader record, the broader context to go through this. That's a great question, though. Any other questions? All right. So, you know, you can imagine you've gotten your decision, you've read it through, you think to yourself, I don't know, I, I, I get it. I get how the decision maker got here. Well, the next thing you have to do is, is take that deep dive to look into the broad legal and factual context to ascertain if the decision is still justifiable still justifiable in outcome and still justifiable in reasoning. And the court sets out seven categories of things to think about here. They say this is not a rote line by line test applied every single time, but they are things you should turn your mind to. And on the exam, certainly I would think you'd want to go through these categories. So the first, and now we're talking about outside of just reading the decision, what's going to bear on my assessment of the reasonableness of this decision? And the first thing, you know, not surprisingly at this point, I would say, is the governing statutory scheme. Courts expecting this decision to make sense in light of the statutory scheme broadly that the administrative decision maker is being asked to apply. And what they're getting at here 
is the decision needs to comply not just with a plausible reading of the particular provision at issue, but also the broader rationale, purview, purpose of the statutory scheme. What's this statute trying to do? What's this statute trying to do which has integrated this administrative decision maker into its broad process in some way? And are we satisfied that the decision maker is reasonably acting in accordance with that broader statutory purpose? And when we get to the Mason case, we're going to see a bit of an illustration of a tension between the decision and interpretation of a narrow provision and the broader statutory context. What I think is you know, interesting, and um, maybe you caught it, is you know, when they talk about the importance of understanding the purpose of the statutory scheme, they tie that into, the Supreme Court ties that into the concept that if a statute provides discretion, that discretion needs to be exercised in accordance with the statutory purpose. And they cite for that you know, Ron Corelli, that case that we talked about at the outset of the course that I hinted at does keep coming up over and over again. And indeed, we see it again here in Babylon on this really crucial point of we expect the decision maker to act within the broader purpose of the statutory context that they're operating within. There's other less sort of uh, big picture things you need to look at when you're looking at a statute. You know, you need to look at things like defined terms in the statute, make sure the decision maker is acting in uh, accordance with those defined terms. Within this context, the question of fettering is noted by the court. This is that idea that when you're granted a broad discretion, you need to accept and exercise that discretion to the full extent that it's been authorized to you and not, not artificially constrain yourself and say, I refuse to consider a part of the discretion that I've been given. So if you have concerns that the decision maker has fettered their discretion by you know, imposing on themselves constraints that don't really arise in the statute, yeah, this comes up in this part of the analysis. And then you see in this part of the analysis, the court also noting a really important point that we saw Audrey Bakhtar make, I think, quite well uh, when in that clip we watched at the end of last class, where Audrey Bakhtar was talking about the question of uh, true questions of jurisdiction and this idea of, you know, when you're talking about the real outer limits of the types of questions that a court, that the uh, tribunal can take for itself, do we have that as a correctness review or is there a reasonableness there? And the court notes that, you know, a key part 
of understanding the statutory context is interpreting those outer limits of your jurisdiction, interpreting you know, what is and is not the sort of question that can fundamentally be brought before you. And the court does make clear that these types of questions are going to be reviewed on a deferential reasonableness standard, but suggests that this review will be thorough and, and um, a somewhat exacting review to ensure that there is coherence on these questions of what gets to come before this tribunal. So, you know, you really, again, can't go wrong on your exam and certainly not in your practice on spending the time looking through the statutory provisions. On the exam, every provision I give you, uh, I put in there for a reason. Now, it may be not a huge point. It may just be sort of a bit of context, a bit of background. But I'm not going to put red herrings in there. I'm not going to put a whole bunch of provisions that you don't need to you know, concern yourself with at all. And so spend the time, you know, spend the time reading through those. I, I think I did the exam last year. They used to say to do to a lot of reading time. Now they say don't, but just make it longer. And I did last year. So it was three hours and 15 minutes. You know, you'll have the time to, to read the, uh, the materials. And even though it's not called reading time on the exam, I would recommend you know, using that as a reading time. I don't strictly recommend using reading break only for reading, but I do recommend using a lot of time uh, in the exam, especially in admin law, to read that stuff carefully, read the statute. And then when you're a lawyer, you know, that times 10, you're going to really want to spend the time, understand the governing statutory scheme. And once you feel like you understand that, you know, that is the first external context that needs to guide your analysis of the reasonableness of the decision. And that should fit into your broader conception of admin law and the judge's role of overseeing, you know, the executive's discharge of its powers provided by the executive or by the legislature. You know, maybe kind of obviously we need to start by understanding what the legislature specifically said and wanted to give to this body. All right, so that's the first of these sort of considerations we're going to go through. Are there any questions on this one? All right. Um, I think there's a good explanation in Vavilov and a good concise distillation of this point, of, of the one we just covered in the Mason case. So the next one is other relevant statutory or common law. And this one is a little bit tricky, to be honest. And I think other relevant statutory law and other relevant common law are difficult to lump together. I kind of get why they did. You don't want to have 100 factors, but they are rather distinct considerations. Because other relevant statutory law may often be other statutes that are directly binding on the tribunal and are really just as as much of an element of the legislature's guide for the executive as is that you know enabling statute the governing statutory scheme 
we spoke a bit about the National Energy Board, or I should say Canada Energy Regulator Act, and we traced through it a bit, and you saw just how um, many different other statutes are integrated into that. And we talked a bit about other statutes that might come to bear, talking about the Administrative Tribunals Act, if it's specifically invoked. Uh, we talked a tiny bit about the Canadian Bill of Rights as a potential statute coming in for federal legislation. Things like the Interpretation Act or other things that could be relevant. And, you know, again, broadly, the legislature is presumed to know the laws, to know all the laws, and to make its laws uh, be set out in a coherent way. And so if there's more than one law that appears to bear upon a, a situation, more than one statutory law, you're not expected to find incoherence there. You're expected to be able to reconcile that and apply that and take that all as part of the legislature's guidance for the executive you know, in this administrative function. So other relevant statutory law, hugely important, hugely important to look at, and really kind of part and parcel of the governing statutory scheme generally. You know, if there's applicable legislation, it's applicable legislation, and you better make sure it's, it's applied reasonably. And we'll talk about statutory interpretation in just one second. Common law, on the other hand, much different beast. Common law, of course, is judicially created law that's intended to bind judicial decisions pursuant to stare decisis, right? Now, common law may you know, be relevant to determining the reasonableness of an administrative decision, but it's not necessarily. There may be any number of features which means that the common law on a subject isn't necessary to be applied in precisely the same way a judge would by a tribunal. There may be different considerations, different statutory aims that are being addressed, which could be stymied, in fact, if the common law were to be applied just the same way by a tribunal as it would be by a court. I'll come back with an example of that to sort of illustrate the point. But I want to say on the flip side, there may be times where there's a clear common law rule and it would be incoherent for the legal system as a whole if it were not applied in the same way by the tribunals. So I'll start with that second example, then I'll go back and offer one of the example of the first kind. So where you would really need to apply the common law in the same way, there may be uh, any number of different administrative provisions which deal with issues that are also covered by criminal law. In the immigration context, we see it in the Mason case, we see it in the Push-Panathan case that we talked about briefly, but it comes up in lots and lots of places. There may be a common law defense 
to a criminal charge that would be available if there were to be a criminal charge brought against somebody in the criminal courts. Now, it may be fundamentally incoherent for a tribunal to deal with the exact same conduct and to not recognize that common law defense. Not necessarily, but it often would be. So it may be the case that the tribunal is expected to know the common law. You know, let's say there's a an example in immigration calls upon um, deportation requiring the offense at issue. Like, let's say the U.S. wants to deport somebody back to the United States for a criminal to face criminal charge. One thing is generally you need to show that the conduct that's being complained of in the U.S. is also a crime in Canada. That's, that's generally what's required for deportation. So the immigration courts are not being asked to try a criminal offense, right? But they are being asked to ascertain if these alleged set of facts would constitute a crime in Canada. If you're doing that, and there is a defense that's recognized at common law to that crime, you know, clearly you'd have to consider that defense and it would be unreasonable not to do so. So that's, a, I think, a very clear example of when the common law necessarily would circumscribe what would be a reasonable outcome in an administrative decision. But on the other side of things, you know, I'm doing a, um, a class action um, on behalf of the BC government with respect to, um, against opioid producers. And one of the heads of causes of action being relied upon is the Competition Act, Section 52. And Section 52 of the Competition Act sets out a, um, a prohibition on misleading uh, business practices. You know, in this context, saying that the opioid producers and manufacturers were misleading in their marketing of opioids. At common law, to bring an action for misrepresentation, you need to show not only a misrepresentation, but also reasonable reliance on that misrepresentation. The Competition Act doesn't say anything about reasonable reliance being a necessary condition, in fact, suggests it's not going to be one. So if interpreting the Competition Act, a tribunal were to read reasonable reliance in as a requirement, it would, you know, I say, actually undermine the effectiveness of the Competition Act, whose goal is not to simply codify the common law, but to provide greater protections for consumers against misleading in you know, a corporate advertising. So what am I getting at? I think this is probably seeming a little diffuse right now. Let's boil it right down to what's really important. 
when we're talking about applying this reasonableness standard and we're at this factor of other relevant statutory or common law, I want you to think other relevant statutory law, if that exists, it's going to be basically the same as the governing statutory scheme. Better be taken into account. You better be consistent with the overall purpose of this legislative scheme broadly. Common law, you need to be a little bit more contextual and principled. Does this common law rule that somebody's saying should have applied really make sense to apply here? Or would not applying it, in fact, be reasonable or maybe even preferable, maybe even further the statutory aims more completely? So you're, you know, I, I'd, I, know I could probably spend a lot more time on this because this is pretty nuanced. But I think your big picture takeaway here would be the common law component can be a little tricky. Make sure that you don't confuse um, other law, other statutory law with the common law. And make sure you recognize that these tribunals are not necessarily bound to follow the common law. That's, that's for judges. That's at the judicial level. At the tribunal level, they're not necessarily bound to follow the common law. Indeed, if they were, that whole idea that they can have conflicting decisions it wouldn't work. Okay, that's a tricky one. Any questions on that one? All right. I'll quickly do principles of statutory interpretation. Um, this one is a little bit tricky in you know, to really grab your head around what the difference is that they're getting at, but it's not that difficult to say, so I can do it relatively quickly. So the court in Vavilov on the principles of statutory interpretation says, look, part of reasonableness review is going to be looking at how the tribunal interpreted the statutes that are at issue, and there will be statutes at issue. They say... We, the courts, have a well-settled, extensive body of law around statutory interpretation. You know, the modern approach, the words will be construed in their grammatical and ordinary sense, harmonious with the object of the act, the scheme of the act, intention of parliament, like do your rosary, move on. The, there's endless principles of statutory interpretation that can be brought to bear. There's amusing articles that show how they all conflict with each other and you can get almost anywhere you want to. So where does that leave the tribunals? Do they have to go through that exercise? Do they have to say the modern approach statutory interpretation? What guides their statutory interpretation approach? And the court says it's not strict. It's not formulaic. I don't need you to recite the modern approach to statutory interpretation. I don't need you to recite Latin maxims and conflicting principles, etc., etc. I do need you to show me fundamentally that you're alive to three things. What the text actually says, text, the context within which that text arises, the context, where in the statute is, what other provisions are around it. 
text, context, and purpose. What was the legislature's purpose in enacting this provision and this statute more broadly? So they, in essence, say, I, I, just, I don't need you to be rigid. I don't need you to be formulaic. I don't need you to incant any statutory interpretation mantras. I do need to see that you were alive to what the text said, the context, the statutory context in which that arose, and the purpose of the provision in the statute. If you can do those things, you've done the right approach. Any questions on that one? Okay, let's take our break now. Um, so we'll come back at uh, 11.40. All right, um, let's get back to it. Sorry, I realized that I didn't have the mic on. I was like, why am I shouting today? I just was trying to project, but it's because this mic wasn't on. Um, now you can, now I can talk softly and eloquently, hopefully. All right, so let's keep going through our, our list of the different legal and factual constraints that we're going to be using to assess the context in which we're engaging in this reasonableness review. So we've looked at the governing statutory scheme, the relevant statutory law, which I kind of like lumping together with that one, common law, kind of a mess, principles of statutory interpretation, keep it simple, you know, text, contact, purpose, show me you got those things, and then... I'll be happy with your approach to statutory interpretation. The next one, and actually the next two, are really getting much more into the record that was before the decision maker. And the, the next category to consider is indeed the evidence that was before the decision maker. Um, the evidence that was before the decision maker constitutes the record that you're going to be looking at on a judicial review. It's one of my favorite things about judicial review is that the record is what it is. Generally, we'll talk a little bit of expanding the record later in the course, but generally you get, it may be, it may be this much, it may be 10 pages, it may be a binder, it may be a box, it may be as I did a judicial review, well, that, as we talked about, that new prosperity mine uh, it was several storage rooms full of evidence. But fundamentally, it's constrained and knowable, unlike a trial where preparing for a trial, the evidence is you know, gargantuan, discovery is endless. So the evidence before the decision maker is the record. And it's counsel's job to put the record to the court on judicial review. And then the court needs to be sure that the decision is reasonable in light of the evidence that was before it. And this is not saying that you do it over, obviously. This is not saying you get to re-argue the evidence. What they're looking for is really two kind of fundamental flaws. That the tribunal, I should say three fundamental flaws, I'm sorry. Three fundamental flaws. That there was no evidence 
to support a finding? That the decision maker fundamentally misapprehended the evidence, just fundamentally didn't understand the evidence, didn't understand what a piece of paper meant. Or that the decision maker failed to account for a piece of evidence that was before it. I'm going to go through each one of these in a tiny bit more detail. So no evidence on a point really means that. There is nothing you can point to that supports a factual finding. In my judicial review on Friday, you know, that was all I did. It was I got up there and I said, there's four factual findings that were made. Here's evidence to support each one. Took the court through the binder, showed the evidence to support the findings. The court said, great. You were wrong to say there's no evidence to support these findings. There is evidence to support these findings. That's basically the basis for the decision. The next is that you fundamentally misapprehend the evidence. And, you know, again, this is just, you just didn't understand what this thing is. You know, you said that this was a, um, a draft of an authorization, but this was the final authorization. And this allowed this activity you said was otherwise, you know, illegal to have gone ahead. You know, something fundamental like that, that you just didn't understand what you were looking at in a clear and demonstrable way. The third one, failing to account for evidence, is the tricky one. Because you don't have to go through every single piece of evidence. You don't have to list every piece of evidence that was led before you. You don't have to address every single argument that was made about the evidence. But it can rise to a level where there's a key finding that seems contradicted by key evidence. And if that is not addressed, that disconnect can be unreasonable. So this is really a matter of degree. You don't have to recite every piece of evidence. You don't have to even address every single argument. I'll get to that in a second. But you do have to ensure that your key findings grapple with any apparently contradictory evidence, you know, clear contradictory evidence. It's always a matter of degree, you know. Just saying, well, there's this one piece of evidence that kind of points the other way they didn't talk about. That's not going to get you very far. But saying there's this absolutely complete answer in the record to this thing they accepted, and they don't even mention it, you know, that's where you got a problem. So evidence before the decision maker really important component of this as you can imagine practically in terms of how much time you spend on these judicial reviews in preparing this is a big chunk of time again to know the record you know looking to see if the evidence actually supports the decision and really the best lawyers when you watch them in court 
they have this mastery of the record. They just, the judge asks a question, they say, binder three, tab 64, it's right there. You know, it's, it, it takes time to, to get that prepared, but that's, that's worth it. So any questions on that point? All right. The next one is the submissions of the parties. And again, this is that kind of balance that, that uh, you have to come to a happy medium here where you don't have to address every single argument that's been leveled you know, by both parties, no matter how out there and spurious and thrown in there. But you have to address their main arguments on the main points. You have to be responsive to the substance of what was argued before you. And if there's a, an argument that's presented, which would be a complete answer to a charge or would be a justification for a completely different outcome, and you give it no mind, no attention in your reasons, that very easily could be something that would cause you to be found to have been unreasonable. The flip side of this, though, is this is where that idea ties in that we really care about what was argued before you and not the council withhold arguments to raise them later on judicial review if they're unhappy. So, you know, if there was a submission that was made and it wasn't addressed, okay, it could be a problem. But when there's a argument that's advanced before the court, this decision can't stand because this argument is a complete answer. Ersite could say, well, you never raised that argument before the decision maker. And the court will say, well, I can't say the reasons are unreasonable for not dealing with an argument that wasn't made. So submissions of the parties can kind of cut both ways. Was there something that was missed you know, by the decision maker? Could be a problem for the decision standing. On the other hand, is there something that's now being raised for the first time on judicial review that wasn't put to the decision maker? Well, that could be a serious problem for the court deciding to intervene. Any questions on that one? All right, um, two more. Um, this is the hardest one, maybe. Past practices of the administrative body. This is where the court tries to land the problem of persistent discord in an administrative decision maker's jurisprudence. Remember I talked about that mobile home park where RTB, some decisions go some way, some go the other way on the exact same argument, on the exact same lease. And we talked about that in the context of the rule of law and how people find this to be a very troublesome development for the rule of law to allow you know, two people in the exact same factual circumstance to go to the exact same adjudicator and get exactly opposite answers on something as fundamental as where they get to live. So this problem has long vexed the courts because one solution is to say, okay, tribunals, you're now bound by your own decisions and any failure to 
follow previous decisions is overturnable, just the same as when the courts depart from stare decisis. And they said, no, that doesn't work. That's not going to allow for the flexible, dynamic, high-volume decision-making we need in these admin tribunals. And there's no real theoretical basis. Stare decisis is a judicial concept for the purposes of the common law, and it's not easily you know, implanted into the uh, administrative world. So they've rejected that idea. But this concern of a persistent discord, decisions going this way and that over and over and over again, certainly troubles the court. So, you know, what they say is when there is this persistent discord, what I mean by that is numerous decisions on the same issue go in different directions from the same tribunal. When there is persistent discord and that is raised before the decision maker, it may be unreasonable to fail to address and to try to reconcile that discord. So in my RTB example with the mobile home park, if I were to go back with a sixth person who had been evicted, and I were to say, hey, three of these went one way, two of these went the other way, and the tribunal were to just simply say, you know, I interpret section six as allowing the eviction, the eviction stands. I were to go to court, I would say, I raised this discord. I raised the fact decisions are going every which direction here. There's no effort to reconcile or resolve this discord, no consideration of it. And the court may say, yeah, those reasons do not therefore reach the level of justification, transparency, intelligibility we require. This doesn't um, you know, meet the standards that we expect from tribunals in the face of discord to at least try to reconcile it. So you can kind of think of it as like a sort of more meta solution. So they say, there have been arguments saying if you can show persistent discord, this should be a correctness category. If there's persistent back and forth in the tribunals, then the court should get to settle it once and for all. Easy. The court said we're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is recognize that in the face of this discord, it's the tribunal's job to figure it out, figure out a path forward, and a failure to do so could be unreasonable. So you see the sort of sleight of hand there. Maybe sleight of hand is wrong. That's not, that's not fair. It's not sleight of hand. It's a, it's a different solution to the problem where you avoid a, a new category of correctness review for persistent discord, which would be hard to, to understand the specific limits on, like how persistent, how much discord, how long would it have to be. Instead of recognizing you know, a new correctness category, they say, look, if somebody raises that you've got a whole bunch of decisions going this way and that, you better address it in your reasons. You better, you better try to work through this discord yourselves or else you could be vulnerable. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the sort of tricky part of this past practices of admin tribunals. Is, and, and you know, I think an interesting part of the story of Avila of how it resolved that dilemma that we you know, hopefully we're all a little troubled by when I raised it with the mobile home parks example. Um, Past practices of admin tribunal, though they don't simply, this factor is broader than just that. 
really what this calls for is the court to understand the tribunal, its practices, its procedures, what it's done in the past. Because that can all be relevant to understanding the context. So you'd like to know, you know, the policy guidelines. You'd like to know things about who the tribunal's staffed by, these sorts of things. It's going to help you understand this body to get that context. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And you can look at them in there and they do suggest that. And I actually missed something that I was going to come back to. That's another good one to, to point out. Yeah, I mean, the governing statutory scheme, I really do like thinking of it as, as the, 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 the main statute that you're worried about. But other relevant statutory or common law, um, there's a few other things I meant to touch on in that context. And one was policies and guidelines. Again, these sorts of things aren't binding, but they can form part of the context that can help you understand, you know, the regulations also. And the other thing that fits under here is international law can be another factor. We see that when we get to the Mason case where there's a treaty at issue, actually in the SOCAM case also, which bears on how you should interpret the statute. So I think I got so hung up on difficulties in common law that I sort of skipped over a little bit that I meant to touch on and other things that are relevant there. So in that second step, you know, I want you to think other statutory or common law as well as the tribunal's policies and procedures, regulations, and then even international law can come into play. We'll see more about international law when we get to especially the Mason case. That was a great catch, thank you. Any other questions? All right. The last one is the potential impact of the administrative decision. This may seem familiar from Baker. Uh, and again, the range of potential impacts of an administrative decision on an individual vary tremendously. The greater the impact, the more the court is going to expect the decision maker to fully justify, to fully weigh the evidence in a clear and intelligible way. I kind of think of this one as, you know, sort of a something that will up the requirements on everything else in terms of how well you justify your decision. So if you have a person facing, you know, deportation to a regime where they're likely going to face a very harsh prison sentence and you skip a 
argument that maybe isn't the key argument that was raised, but was certainly raised and could have had a bearing on the decision that you make, the importance of that decision to the individual is likely going to mean the court's going to say, you know, not good enough. You have to do that again. You have to consider this argument. If you have a very minor, uh, you know, thing at issue, you know, my case with this residential tenancy branch, no, sorry, my Friday, my CRT case um, about the reasonableness of a award of $4,500 of damages, like nothing. In that case, uh, dealing with every single argument conceivably you know, raised it may not be nearly as important. So this potential impact is kind of an overriding contextual factor that can affect the expectations of the rigorousness of the analysis, the rigor of the analysis sort of throughout the process. You know, for that reason, I argue it first. It kind of makes more sense that way. Hey, this is a hugely important decision. And so we better go through all these factors in a very exacting way. Or this is, in the grand scheme of things, a very routine administrative decision. And the potential impact is quite low. And so therefore, my friend's cases that come from the national security context are not particularly applicable here. You know, that sort of a thing. So you, you know, I, I think as a advocate, throw that one up at the top. But as somebody following the Supreme Court of Canada's rubric, yeah, I'd probably just leave it where it is at the bottom. But I think that one is, um, you know, pretty self-explanatory. Are there any questions? All right, so... What are we getting at here? What are we doing? Well, I'm saying... When you're faced with review of a decision on a reasonableness standard, how do you apply that? How do you approach that? And what you're going to be doing is presuming you have reasons, you're going to be going through these factors. On the exam, you're going to be saying this is a reasonableness review. The approach to reasonableness is set on Vavilov. Um, there's two categories, internally coherent reasoning and justifiable in light of legal and factual constraints. Internally coherent reasoning is, you know, explain that. I think that there's a problem of internal coherent reasoning here, or there's not. Explain why. The second broad category is justifiable in light of factual and legal constraints. This breaks down into these subcategories. Go through each one, explain how they do or do not apply, you know, to the facts before you. So it's a um, it's a quite usable framework. It sort of maps easily into submissions onto an exam. And um, yeah, you're going to be applying it on your exam. All right. Any questions? All right, then I'm going to move into the review in the absence of reasons briefly. And we did touch on this earlier. Uh, but to return to it, you know, obviously this culture of justification and reasons first approach presumes reasons. What do you do when there are no reasons? It's a tricky question. And it seems like one of the easiest solutions is the courts are just going to expect reasons to be issued more regularly. Uh, there's going to be, and there has been, I think, empirically, 
a shift to more reasonings, uh, more tribunals offering reasons and more circumstances and the reasons being lengthier post Babylon. But there still are some bodies that are not going to issue reasons, either by choice or just because their fundamental nature makes it not feasible to issue reasons. I highlighted the example of law society coming to a decision about accreditation, or not accreditation, but um, whether the graduates of Trinity Western University could take the PLTC course. And of course, the law society is an elected body of benchers. So what drives any individual person is not really amenable to one set of coherent, unified reasons. There may be different things driving different people. The um, city councils, same thing, you know, similar elected body framework. Cabinet often doesn't give reasons for its decisions. You know, cabinet is the highest level of government, consisting of the ministers, the highest individuals within the executive. And there's a principle of cabinet unity, which means that it is by convention the case that individual members of cabinet will never reveal that there was discord, disagreement on a major decision. You know, the Minister of Environment may personally be dead set against a decision to authorize a major expansion of a pipeline. But if cabinet decides to do so, the Minister of Environment's not supposed to be going out there saying, well, I told him this was a bad idea. You know, that kind of stuff that gets you kicked out of cabinet. And so in that type of a world, reasons doesn't often make a lot of sense. There are some circumstances cabinet gives reasons, but it's the exception. So again, another area where you're not going to get reasons. So what does the court do in the absence of reasons? Well, they say first, kind of obviously, we do have to focus on the result. They have to focus on whether the result is justifiable, is reasonable. But they also say, we're not as in the dark as you might think. We are able to look at what was before the decision maker, the evidence, the submissions, material that might have been gathered, and based on this, we can probably piece together a decently good idea as to what drove the decision. Now, it's far from perfect. And in the absence of an ability to really understand what drove a decision, you just have to focus on whether the outcome was reasonable or not. The check on this being a problem is that the duty of procedural fairness to provide reasons will ensure that in many, most places, you're going to get some reasons. And the circumstances where it's not available you know, tend to be quite high-level policy-type decisions where exacting review as to the justifications offered for a high-level policy decision is maybe less crucial than just making sure that high-level decision is a legally plausible outcome because this is really getting into the world of the political quite often. 
I don't want to spend too much more time on this because we get the great example when we get to Trinity Western University of seeing how the court ascertained the reasons for that decision based on the record before it. But this being a difficult area in the Vavilov framework is, you know, kind of undoubted and important to, to keep that in mind. Any questions on that part? All right. I think I've got 10 minutes left, and I would love to get through remedy and then just applying this to Mr. Vavilov, and then we'll be in a good place to pick up with SOCAM uh, next class. So remedy. What do you do when you find a decision has been unreasonable? Well, we talked about this at the outset of the course for a reason. I think it's hugely important. And we also talked about how the overwhelming presumption is you quash the decision and you remit it for reconsideration. And why do you do that? Well, fundamentally, it's the point that the legislature never asked you to make this decision. They asked the executive body to make this decision simply because the executive body erred in some way in coming to their decision doesn't make it your job to decide it now, court. It's rather still the executive. And you may be missing something. There may be other reasons that the decision needs to go uh, the way it went originally or maybe in a slightly tweaked way. Whatever you may think is the right outcome, court, just may not be the same as the person with the big picture who was actually asked to make the decision could find. So that is by and far, by and large, overwhelming the presumption. However, Vavilov is an example of an exception where the courts say there is no purpose to sending this back. And the test for when you're allowed to not send something back, but instead just substitute your order for the order of the uh, statutory decision maker, is when a particular decision is inevitable and sending it back would serve no useful purpose. That's a high bar to clear. It's disappointing to me, in a sense, that we see it cleared in two of the next three cases we look at. Three of the next three cases we look at. Sorry, SOCAM 2, I believe. That is strange. Usually, it's very, very rare. Usually, I barely even bother with it because I know I'm going to get the thing sent back. I say, it's not inevitable. You know, I don't even really challenge it usually. But in Mr. Vavilov's case, they did find indeed the outcome was inevitable. So just to briefly explain that, explain why. You know, sorry, before I do that, I just want to highlight. So the test I really think is clear, inevitable, remitting would serve no useful purpose. But the court also says these are the types of issues that... Um, that need to be weighed in determining the useful purpose of sending things back and whether it ought to be done. You know, they say issues like delay, this has been dragging on forever. 
fairness to the parties, urgency. Hey, if you send it back and it takes a month, the whole thing's going to be moot. You know, the nature of the regulatory regime, the opportunity of the decision maker to weigh in, the cost of the party, the efficient use of public resources, these are the types of things that can weigh on that discretion. It's listed in Babylon. But the fundamental point is that it's not the, the rule. And that Air Canada case is good on that. Ordinarily send it back. This is the exception. You need inevitable and no useful purpose. So why was Mr. Vavilov's situation inevitable and why would remitting it serve no useful purpose? Well, we'll remember, you know, this is a question of quashing his citizenship on the basis that his parents were secret spies. Court goes through the standard of review analysis that's just created. And again, like the facts of the case start on like page 200 or something like that. Court goes through the um, its new approach and says, okay, the presumption's reasonableness and there's no basis here to depart from reasonableness. There is no statute saying to depart from reasonableness. This is not a statutory appeal. It's not a constitutional question. It's not a question of law of central importance, the legal system as a whole. And it's not a question of competing lines between jurisdiction. Those are the exceptions we've recognized. None of this applies. Therefore, it's reasonableness. We go through the reasonableness approach. And the question is whether this statute, which limited the ability of people to receive birthright citizenship when they were um, the children of uh, foreign agents, could not reasonably be found to apply to clandestine foreign spies. Court goes through the governing statutory scheme they go through the broader legislative scheme, which was the Foreign Missions and International Organizations Act, which implements treaties, talks about the treaties it implements. All of this points to the idea that it was never anybody's intention that secret foreign agents would be caught by this section. It talks about the absurd consequences of this interpretation and just fundamentally comes to the point that there is no way to reasonably interpret this statute as applying to Mr. Vavilov's situation. So at this point, they say there's no useful purpose in sending this back for redetermination. The decision is inevitable, and we are simply going to substitute our decision, say he can have citizenship. And it's a small bone to throw to this guy who you recall, you know, had his life and his status in Canada somewhat you know, grabbed away. The issue was grabbed away and became this, you know, administrative law zoo that took much longer to hear and much longer to decide than it otherwise would have. So thankfully, at least at the end of it, the court said, we're not going to make you go back for one last thing. Here's your citizenship. You know, you're probably are the only person to ever be granted citizenship by the Supreme Court of Canada directly. And there you go. So 
an exceptional case on remedy, um, but ultimately uh, something that I don't want you to overread as suggesting this happens as a matter of course. Are there any questions on remedy or the facts there? All right, I'm not going to keep going into SOCAM. SOCAM is a case we can deal with very quickly, though. It sets out another category of correctness review. It's a funny case because there had been a case that had set out the standard of correctness review before, also called SOCAM, from the Supreme Court of Canada, just a few years earlier. It was cited in Vavilov, and in essence, they just seem to have forgotten about it in the majority reasons and they're like oh yeah that one too it's also correctness review we'll talk about that quickly um, then we'll talk about the mason case which will be kind of a review of what we talked about today uh, and then we'll we'll get into the bell and the descent on friday so we'll stop there thanks so much